0: Tonight, from verse 17 all the way through the end of the chapter, and so my goal is a big one. I want to preach to you tonight ten sermons. Actually, I should say I want to preach ten sermons all in one um, because as I began to outline the material that's before us here in Luke chapter 6, it occurred to me that one could realistically preach ten different messages from these verses without being overly tedious. Jesus' teaching in these verses is full and it comes in rapid fire succession and covers a wide range of topics, persecution, materialism, revenge, love, charitable giving, Christian accountability, assurance of salvation, just to name a few. But tonight I'm going to try and cover all of that in the space of one evening service. So ten sermons in one. And the reason why I want to cover it all tonight is threefold. First, I want to cover all the bases in a single evening because that's the way Jesus himself preached this material. that is to say, luke six seventeen through forty nine appears to be the substance of one multi topical sermon preached by Jesus in a single morning, and so I'm going to try to tackle it now in a single evening. Second, I want to move quickly through all of these verses tonight because though I want us to look at the book of Luke. In a thorough fashion, I don't want to pause here and spend three months in an individual chapter of the book or seven years in the book if we kept with that rate. And third, I'm going to fly over these 33 verses at a fairly high altitude tonight because just a few years back I actually spent 23 weeks in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in which Matthew the Apostle records this same sermon of Jesus in more detailed fashion. Many of you will have been here to look at these very concepts in depth from that series. And if you weren't, but would like to pause longer on one or two of the topics Jesus raises tonight, then you can find those messages in manuscript form on the church website. But for tonight, I want us to move quickly through all of these verses. And while we're thinking about the parallel sermon In Matthew 5, 7, I should probably pause to note that in these chapters in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, recording this very same sermon, we read in Matthew 5, verse 1, that Jesus went up on the mountain in order to preach this famous sermon. That's why we typically call it the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, it's a bit striking, perhaps, that Luke here appears to give us a different version of things in verses 17-19. through Read those verses with me. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of His disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch Him for power was coming from Him and healing them all. Matthew says that Jesus went up on the mountain to preach this sermon. And Luke says in verse 17 that Jesus came down and stood on a level place to preach this sermon. So what gives? Is this a place of the Bible contradicting itself? I don't think so. Rather, I think we should picture Jesus going up on a mountain, up on a a large hill we would think of as they were in Israel at that time, and looking for a suitable place to assemble his disciples and the gathering crowd for a lesson. So perhaps he picked his way up the rocky hillsides looking for a spot that was high enough so that his voice would carry out to the entire crowd, but also flat enough so that he and the people would actually have a place to stand and to sit. And as he worked his way diagonally or horizontally across the face of this mountain or hillside, suddenly, probably a level clearing, a small plateau came into his view just down on the other side of the hill. And so having gone up the mountain to teach Matthew chapter 5, he now, Luke chapter 6, descends back down a little ways in order to stand on a level place. So we're correct having read Matthew, if we think of this sermon as the Sermon on the Mount. But if we were to think of it solely in terms of the description given by Luke, we might come to know this particular patch of biblical ground as the Sermon on the Plateau. In either case, I want you to notice also from verses 17 through 19 that we not only have here a signal as to the location of Jesus' most famous sermon, but these first three verses also record the timing of it. And without laboring the point too much, it is helpful, I think, to notice that. It is helpful to notice that Jesus preached these words after he called his disciples, not before. Verses 12 through 16, as we saw, was a case of Jesus calling certain men to himself to be his followers. And then in verses 17 and following, he sits those men down for ethics 101, if you will. And why is that order important? Simply to remind us that Jesus was not preaching this code of ethics that lies before us tonight as a method of becoming one of his disciples. Rather, he preaches this to men who have already been called disciples, who have already begun to follow Jesus. So he preaches this not as a method of becoming a disciple, but as an explanation of how one should live after one becomes a disciple. That is, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, we become disciples of Jesus not by obeying the Sermon on the Mount, not by fulfilling any code of ethics, in fact, but rather by faith in the fact that Jesus, in His sinless life, has actually fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount for us. He has actually fulfilled the code of ethics for us. He's actually fulfilled the law of God for us. That's how we become a disciple, by entrusting ourselves to Jesus and by Faith in the fact that Jesus also bore the death sentence that we ourselves have earned for not obeying what we're going to read tonight. So again, we become disciples not by obedience, but by faith in Jesus. But once we become disciples by faith in Jesus, there is, Luke 6, an expected way of life. There is a lifestyle that honors God and is best for us. There is a sermon on the mount or a sermon on the plateau for those of us who believe. So then, having cleared up the location and the timing of these famous words, I want us to devote the rest of our time now outlining the content of this sermon from verses 20 through 49. And as I sketched it out for myself yesterday morning... It seemed to me that we could divide the substance of the Sermon on the Plateau, as Luke records it here, really just into two main headings. So just two big headings tonight. The first heading from verses 20 through 36, I'm entitled, Steering into the Skid. Steering into the Skid. And then the second heading, verses 37 through 49, Christian Common Sense. Christian common sense. So let's think about both of those together, beginning with steering into the skid. You all realize, I hope, that when your car is sliding across a patch of ice, contrary to every natural instinct within you, you actually have to turn the wheel into the skid instead of away from the skid. In every other situation, if your car was going off the Left side of the road, you would jerk the wheel to the right, wouldn't you? But not on the ice. On the ice, you have to do that which is counterintuitive. That which doesn't at first glance seem to make sense. And so it is largely with the Christian life. For instance, it is counterintuitive, verses 22 and 23, to think that men's insults against you you, are actually reason to rejoice. It is counterintuitive in verse 24 to view wealth as a curse. And verse 27, it certainly doesn't seem to make sense to our natural minds to love our enemies, does it? And yet, just like steering into the skid on a patch of ice, though it doesn't seem right, these things are actually true, no matter how unnatural they feel. And thus, we have to train ourselves to do what Jesus tells us to do, not simply to do what seems natural. We have to drill these seemingly irrational concepts into our heads with the same gusto with which our dads drilled into our heads that you always steer this into the skid, son. Into the skid, not away from this, into the skid. You remember that? You've got to drill that into your head. You cannot rely on your own intuition in the Christian life. You cannot simply do what feels right. You must do what God says. You must do what actually is right, even if it goes against your natural sense of things. And since what God says often goes against our natural sense of things, we must, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, hide God's words in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. We must hide God's words in our hearts that we might not simply go with the flow. We must hide God's words in our hearts so that we might remember to steer into the skid even when it feels unnatural. We simply have to get these counterintuitive concepts into our heads and in our hearts lest in the heat of the moment we turn the wheel in exactly the wrong direction. So then... What are these counterintuitive concepts that Jesus teaches here? What are these things that don't make natural sense, but that actually make a whole lot of sense when you look at them from God's perspective? Let me give you three summary phrases, all still under this first main heading, steering into the skid. First, in verses 20 to 23, you could write down the phrase backward blessing, backward blessing. Listen to what Jesus has to say about blessings and you'll see why I call them backwards in verses 20 to 23. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. All of those things sound exactly backwards, don't they? You would expect Jesus to say, poverty is a curse. And so is hunger. In fact, my mission in the world is going to be to eradicate such things. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says that we're blessed when we face difficulties. And especially he spends time on the difficulty of being ostracized, spoken evil of, and treated poorly because of our faith in Jesus. We are blessed when we face difficulties. Hear that well. It's not that the difficulties are any less difficult because they're a blessing. They're still difficult. And it's certainly not that we should be callous toward other people who are facing difficulty. Jesus is not here teaching us to say, well, don't worry about those hungry and persecuted Christians in Burma. Actually, if we help them, we'll be robbing them of the blessing that God has for them. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's not the attitude that he's calling for. But he is saying that when you are undergoing difficulty, you need to receive it as a blessing. And not a curse. Why is it a blessing? Because difficulty is a reminder that this world is not your reward. Difficulty is a reminder, verse 20, that the kingdom of God is your reward. It's a reminder that in this world there will always be wants and tears and injustices. But a day is coming when every want will be satisfied and every tear will be wiped away and every injustice will be made right. Difficulty has a peculiar way of urging us to long for heaven. The people of the world have their blessings now. But Jesus is reminding us here that we Christians are looking forward to something better. And our difficulties, therefore, are actually blessings because they remind us where our true reward lies. They make us long for Emmanuel's land. They make us. Desire to be with Jesus where the praise is never ending and where the glory never fades. And we need to remember that. Difficulties, by definition, don't feel good in the moment. And therefore we may be tempted to receive them in the wrong way. We may be tempted to think that our difficulties equate with God's displeasure or God's judgment or perhaps God's lack of compassion or His lack of power. That's how it feels. But remember to steer into the skid. Remember that sometimes in the Christian life, things are counterintuitive. They don't look how they are. They don't certainly feel how they really are. And so it is with difficulties. They are backward blessings. The second heading you could write down is reverse curse. Backward blessing... Reverse curse, verses 24, 25, and 26. After this series of blessings, which from the book of Matthew we know as the Beatitudes, those are the same things that we just finished reading, the Beatitudes, now Jesus proceeds to pronounce a series of parallel curses, which only Luke records. Listen to them in verses 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich! For you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And again, these statements seem to be all twisted around from what seems and feels obvious to us. They speak exactly the reverse of what seems obvious to us. We'd like Jesus to say riches are a blessing and so are good food and laughter and a good name. Those are blessings. That's what we'd like to hear him say. And there is certainly a sense in which those things can be true. But Jesus here says precisely the opposite of what we might generally assume. Woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are well fed, woe to you who laugh and so on. Why does he speak that way? Not because there's anything inherently wrong with riches or food or laughter or a good name. In fact, you can find Bible verses that would support the opposite conclusion. There's nothing inherently wrong with these things. And Jesus is not trying to undermine the places where the Bible teaches that they can be good. So why does he speak this way? I think simply as a reminder that riches and food and laughter and a good name can actually be great curses on our souls if we're not careful. Why is that? Because they have the potential to have the exact opposite effect of difficulty. While difficulty has a way of reminding us not to put all of our eggs in the basket of this world, prosperity tends to make us forget that there's any other basket to put our eggs in. Prosperity tends to make us think that this world is all there is. Even if outwardly we would say, no, 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 no. Heaven is there. I'm living for heaven. When we're wealthy, when we're well fed, when we laugh, when we have a good name, it's easy to forget about heaven even if we sing about it when we come on Wednesday nights. That's why Jesus speaks the way He does here. That's why He speaks elsewhere of the deceitfulness of riches. Mark chapter 4. In Mark 4, He doesn't say riches are bad. He says riches are deceitful. That is, they can easily trick us. Riches, prosperity, can easily fool us into thinking that everything is fine. Because everything is paid for or everything comes easy or everything is available or everything is provided. And therefore, Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, because he knows how easy it is for rich people to fix their gaze only on the treasures of this world. And he knows how hard it is, therefore, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And every one of us in this room, in the grand scheme of things, is well-fed and rich. Every one of us has things far more easy than 90% of the world does. And therefore, we, of all people, need to beware. We need to take these verses seriously. We need to not just do what feels right. Oh, this, well, we have everything we want. That's right. It must be a blessing. No, we need to learn to steer into the skid. We need to remember to see prosperity for what it is. Potentially a great blessing, but potentially a curse that comes at us in reverse. So there are backward blessings. There are reversed curses. Here, and then in verses 27 through 36, you might write down the heading, Love Actually. Love Actually. I'm not promoting the movie by that title. I've never seen it. And I doubt that it has much to teach us. Um, but I thought it was a good title for this section. I say the movie probably has not, not much to teach us because we don't have much to teach one another in general about love. Again, We human beings think and feel about love in ways that are often far different from what the Bible describes. In fact, we're about to hear Jesus say that what the average person thinks of when he hears the word love is actually no big deal. There's something far deeper to be aimed at than the kind of love that we generally think of. So what is love actually? Read verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, What credit is that to you, for even sinners love those who love them? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you, for even sinners do the same? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, if you were to go take one of those intelligence tests that so many people are enamored by, and the person proctoring the test said to you, Okay, now... I'm going to show you a series of words on these flashcards. And I want you, when you see the word, to tell me the first idea that comes to your mind. What would you think of when the word love came up in the rotation? Maybe romantic interest. Maybe your children. Maybe, hopefully, you think of Jesus and the cross because greater love is no man than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. All those things might be right answers, but I doubt your first thought when the love card was displayed in front of your face would be to picture the face of that troublemaker at work or that man who walked out on you or that father who scarred you or the Taliban warrior. I doubt that's what I would think of and I doubt that's what you would think of when we saw the word love. And yet here it is in bright red letters, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and so on. Again, you've got to steer into the skid. It's counterintuitive, and the same can be said of verse thirty. Give to everyone who asks of me. Surely, Jesus doesn't really mean that. I mean, if I did that, I'd be broke. You can ask me about that later, but it's here on the page in plain language for us. And here's the kicker for me. Here's the most counterintuitive of all the statements of Jesus in this section, 27 through 36. If you love those who love you, verse 32, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Do You see what I say when we try to teach one another about love, we think about romance and we think about all the people that we're supposed to love. And so we really can't teach each other anything because everybody thinks of those things. But Jesus says that's not that big a deal. Even sinners do that. You love your wife? Wonderful. God's pleased with that. But it's not like you're doing anything special. I mean, you did get to pick her out after all, right? It's not like someone assigned you a a mean old woman. And we could speak the same of our children, right? Thank God if you love your children. That's a blessing. But it's not unusual. It's not a big deal. They're your kids, right? Of course you love your kids. This is why when I go to funerals, I'm not usually that shocked when someone stands up and says, even of an unbelieving mother, my mom was always there for us kids. She came to the soccer games. She came to see me at college. She took care of us. When I didn't have anywhere to stay, she took me back in. My mom really loved her kids. I'm thankful for that kind of testimony, especially because I know that it doesn't always happen that way. But when I hear it, it's not necessarily surprising. For everyone expects moms and dads to love their kids. That's why it's so painful when they don't. We expect a mother to love her children. But I tell you what would make me really sit up and take notice at a funeral What would make me take notice is if I went to a funeral and a ragged young woman stood up and said, this was a truly good man. I used to be his daughter-in-law. And even though I tore apart his family, even though I left his grandkids in a lurch, even though I cheated on his son, he never gave up on me. In fact, I know that he was praying for me when I wasn't praying for myself. Every year at Christmas, he wrote to me. He visited me when I got sick and was in the hospital. He's actually the one who gave me my Bible. He loved me in spite of myself. That is what Jesus is talking about in verses 32 through 35. That is love, actually. Love is proven, he says, not when someone is lovable, but when he's a jerk or when she is a mean old witch. Love is not proven, to give you a personal example, love is not proven when Toby does good to me because I bring her flowers and work with her all day in the garden. Even sinners do that, Jesus says. Even sinners love those who love them. But her love to me is proven when I am complaining about the food and angry for no reason. And she still does me good out of a joyful heart. Love is proven not when we love the lovable, but when, like our Father in heaven, verse 35, we are kind to ungrateful and evil men. And if you and I are going to do that, we are going to have to train ourselves with God's help to do what comes very unnaturally, to steer into the skid, as it were. So, that's half the sermon having considered some aspects of the Christian life that seem backwards into which we have to steer into the skid, some aspects of the Christian life that go contrary to our normal way of thinking. Now, on the flip side of the coin, I want you to think about Christian common sense. Christian common sense from verses 37 to 49. Not everything in the Christian life feels like steering into the skid. Some things, if we just think about them for a moment or two, just make good, old-fashioned sense. That is, some things in the Christian life are like the laws of nature or the laws of creation, we might more accurately call them. Just as we know that peach trees produce peaches and not apples, so it should be obvious that certain spiritual activities or lack thereof are going to produce certain spiritual Results, Verse 44, that's just common sense. And just as we know that physically blind people don't usually make the best tour guides, so it is with spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. Verse 39, we have to see things for ourselves before we can lead others. That's just common sense. So though some aspects of the Christian life certainly feel like steering into the skid, many of Jesus' teachings are not that complex. Much of what he says is just plain common sense. And that fact that much of what Jesus says is common sense, that fact in itself is common sense. Because hasn't God created all things through Jesus? Colossians 1. And isn't God a God of order and reason? Of course he is. And therefore, it should come as no surprise when we discover that the author of reason and order, the author of common sense, has woven common sense into many aspects of the Christian life, that he's woven common sense into the teachings of the Bible. And it should come as no surprise, therefore, to hear Jesus now describing Christian common sense using a series of metaphors in verses 37 and following. Let me just give you six bullet points on Christian common sense from the mouth of Jesus in these verses and then go back and unpack each one just for a minute or two. Christian common sense says Jesus can be compared to reaping and sowing, verses 37 and 38. Students and teachers, verses 39 and 40. Logs and sawdust, verses 41 to 42. Trees and fruit, verses 43 and 44. Hearts and mouths, Verses or verse 45, and rock and sand in verses 46 to 49. Think out those six commonsensical parables that Jesus tells here with me. First, reaping and sowing, verses 37 and 38. Just notice in these verses how Jesus applies the classic biblical principle that one reaps what he sows. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Did you hear the law of reaping and sowing there? It applies to more than just farm life, doesn't it? Really, in any area of life, it's just common sense, as Paul says, that whatever a man sows, this he also will reap, Galatians six, seven. And I'd imagine that most of us may be fairly familiar with verse thirty eight. And we may read verse thirty eight and understand readily how it applies to our finances, for haven't we all heard sermons about finances from Luke six thirty eight? And we should hear sermons about finances from Luke 6.38. But before we leave the principle of reaping and sowing, notice that according to Jesus, reaping and sowing doesn't simply apply to farming and finances. It also, verse 37, applies to judgment and mercy. If you sow judgment, then judgment will be poured into your lap, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing on you. And if you sow mercy, then mercy will be poured into your lap. You sow judgment, you reap judgment. You sow mercy, you reap mercy. Remember that when you're tempted to play the role of the Pharisee with your co-workers. Jesus says it even more clearly in Matthew 6.15. If you do not forgive the sins of others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Reaping and sowing, then students and teachers. Verses 39 and 40. Again here, Jesus uses... An illustration from everyday life. A blind man on the side of the road. Verse 39. A teacher in his classroom. Verse 40. And he does so to illustrate spiritual reality that's just common sense. He also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. It's just common sense, he says. You don't try to teach other people about God's ways unless you understand them yourself. If you're blind, you don't try to lead someone else until you can see. If you're the pupil, you don't try to lead others until you have become like your teacher. So don't be known in your workplace as the Christian know-it-all. Be known in your workplace as the student of the Scriptures who has learned a good deal but is still learning and growing and longing to be more like Jesus, the teacher. It doesn't mean you should be slow to share your faith. And it doesn't mean that you have to know everything about the Bible before you do share your faith. You don't have to know what the number 666 really means or where Cain got his wife. But what Jesus says here does mean that when you do share your faith, you need to know what you're talking about. You need to know the basics of the Gospel and know them well. You need to be able to present the gospel clearly and fully, not vaguely and sparsely. You need to be a good student of the gospel in order to become an effective teacher of the gospel. That means some of us have some work to do. Students and teachers. Thirdly, logs and sawdust, verses 41 to 42. Just more common sense from the mouth of Jesus here. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Again, this is obvious, isn't it? It's common sense. In the same way that you have to know the gospel message to share it effectively, so also you have to live the gospel message to share it effectively. In other words, you're not in a very good position to help another person if you can't see straight or walk straight yourself. Now again, this doesn't mean that you can never witness to anybody or help anyone with their sins unless you're perfect. It doesn't even mean that you can't help them with their sins unless you're quite good. None of us are either of those things. But it does mean that you cannot help another with his sins unless you are not hypocritical. The principle of logs and sawdust doesn't mean that you're without sin. It means that you're without hypocrisy. It means that when you attempt to help another human being with her sin, you don't come at her blind to your sin. You don't approach Him as though you have it all figured out and are therefore far better than Him. No. Before you can confront someone else about His sin, you must confess your sin. So get the log out of your own eye before getting the sawdust out of your wife's or your husband's or your child's or your neighbor's. Logs and sawdust, then trees and fruit, 43 and 44. Hear the word of the Lord, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Now this has to do with who's really a Christian. We all know the question, does it look like a duck, walk like a duck and quack like a duck? then it's probably a duck right and jesus asked does it look like a banana tree and does it produce like a banana tree and does it taste like a banana tree then it's a banana tree and then therefore from that common sense says well does she look like a christian does she talk like a christian does she confess like a christian does she pray like a christian does she love like a christian Does she obey like a Christian? Does she believe like a Christian? If the answer is yes, then she's probably a Christian. But as we've said before, there aren't just banana trees in Africa. There are also false banana trees. Why do they call them false bananas? Because they look exactly like a banana tree, but they have no fruit. So they're not banana trees. They're false banana trees. And so it may be, says Jesus... That there can be Christians and false Christians. That's the point of the illustration with the fruit. There are people who may, at a distance, look the part. But the question is, is there humility? Is there confession of sin? Is there love for the brothers? Is there obedience to the commands of God? Is there real attachment to Jesus? Is there biblical faith? Is there fruit? If not, let's not deceive ourselves. Jesus says we know Christians the same way we know banana trees, by their fruit. It's common sense. Trees and fruit, hearts and mouths, verse 45. Hearts and mouths. This single verse teaches us a vitally important concept. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil where his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. Or in the version in which many of us memorize this verse, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the quickest way to find out what's important to a man is to listen to what comes out of his mouth. Is it anger, criticism, coarse jesting? Or is it the love that comes from Jesus dwelling in his soul? Is it the stock market or the ball game or his children or his job that comes out of his mouth most readily? Or is it Jesus? Is it morality, family values, the end times, the five points of Calvinism? Is it that or is it Jesus? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever you speak most about is what you love most. And therefore, all of us need to listen a little bit more closely to our mouths so that we might diagnose the condition of our hearts. Mouths and hearts. Finally, rock and sand. Verses 46 to 49. In these final four verses of Luke chapter 6, Jesus gives us one more principle of common sense and it's really an overarching one because Jesus has just finished giving a long discourse on the Christian life and how it should be lived and this is his conclusion and in essence he concludes his sermon by saying since I'm the son of God these are God's words and since these are God's words they're right words and since they're right words they must actually be good for you if you would obey them and since they are good for you how foolish How foolish to build your life on any other foundation than the words of God that are right and pleasant. Listen to how Jesus says it in verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus says it's just common sense. If God wants what's best for us and God has told us what He wants in His Word, then to build our lives on any other foundation but God's Word is foolishness. It's akin to building a house on the beach without sinking any posts or pouring any concrete. But if God is really out to do us good, then building our lives on His Word is like building a house on a foundation of granite. It's not going anywhere when the storms come. And that means that some of us have some home improvement to do, don't we? Let me just ask you, are there any portions of Scripture, perhaps here in Luke 6, perhaps elsewhere, are there any portions of Scripture that speak directly to your life and you know it? But because you know that obedience to that portion of Scripture would require a lot of remodeling and moving things around, you have simply ignored it. I have some things in my house that need to be fixed, but I know that it's going to require a lot of hassle, and I just say, forget it. It's one thing when you've got a leak in your house. It's another thing when your life might be destroyed in a torrent. Is there something that you know God wants you to do or something you know God wants you to change? And are you dragging your feet? If so... Your prayer tonight needs to be that the storm doesn't come. Because when it does, your house is on shaky ground. Now, before we close, I want you to notice what happened after Jesus finished preaching. Read chapter 7, verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. He's just preached the most famous sermon in the history of the world. And all Luke can tell us is when he finished preaching, he went to Capernaum. It's interesting, isn't it? The most famous sermon in the history of the world. And Luke gives us not a word on how the people responded. And we know what happened with the disciples who were here. But what about the crowds? Did the people go away building their lives on the rock? Or leaving them on the sand? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But that's not the important question this evening, is it? The important question this evening is what we will do with Jesus' most famous sermon. And more personally, the question is what will you do with Jesus' most famous sermon? Will you be like the crowds over in John 6? In John 6, Jesus preached another challenging sermon. In that passage, we actually know what the people did. In verse 60, they said, This is is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Is that your response tonight? This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this Sermon on the Mount? After all, no one really obeys this perfectly anyway. This is extremely difficult stuff. And we're saved by grace. And so I'm just going to file Luke chapter 6 under impossible and hope that forgiveness will win the day in the end. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Or will you on the opposite end of the spectrum respond like the young man to whom Jesus preached in Mark chapter 10? Again, here's a young man who hears a moral sermon from Jesus which would have made most people melt into a puddle on the ground. But the young man replied confidently in Mark ten twenty. I've kept all these things from my youth. Jesus rattles off a list of things that he's supposed to do, hard things, and he says, oh yeah, 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 I've kept all those things from my youth. He thought that he was an actually pretty good guy. And Jesus showed him later that he didn't know his own heart. But is it possible that someone in this room is standing all too confidently with that young man this evening? Oh yes, I've kept these things. I'm doing this. I think so. I think I measure it pretty well. Can you honestly read what Jesus says in these verses with self-confidence? Can you actually convince yourself that you already are the person that he's describing? I can't. Have you actually kept all these things from your youth? Or should you respond more like we heard David respond this past Sunday from Psalm 41? You remember David in Psalm 41? Basically saying to God, Lord, Your commandments are right and true. Yes, there's forgiveness and there's peace, but there's also a standard. There's a measuring stick for the Christian life. There is a blessed way of living, Psalm 41. But Lord, I haven't done it. O Lord, verse 4, heal my soul, for I have sinned against You. Have mercy on me. Sinner. Wash me afresh in the blood of Jesus. Forgive me because of Jesus and make me more like Jesus. That's how David responded Oh Lord, your ways are right and I'm wrong. Heal me. So, which is your response to the Sermon on the Plateau? This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? I've kept all these things from my youth. Or heal my soul, for I have sinned against you.